Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So, welcome to episode 12 of the Core Kinetic Podcast. And this one is going to be slightly different to celebrate a year's worth of podcasting. And actually, it's not a year. It's over a year because I'm not as good as some people at being very, very regular every month putting out a podcast, but it's there or thereabouts. I think it's uh, about 14 months, but that just reflects uh, me (laughs) perfectly. (laughs) So we are going to do it a bit differently and it's going to be an ask me anything. Now I put out on social media a little while ago, if anyone's got some questions they want to ask, then, you know, please send them to me, email, message, whatever, and I will do my best to answer them. I got uh, a bunch of different questions, but I've selected four that uh, I felt most confident in answering. And I think have a real broad brush strokes to, to, to what we do and what we talk about here at Core Kinetic. Um, so, yeah, so firstly, I'd just like to thank everyone who has listened and subscribed. And, you know, we've had well over 10,000 downloads. I'm not sure if that's any good or not any good, um, but it probably equates to around a thousand listens per episode, um, which, you know, uh, suits me down to the ground that anyone uh, actually listens. And it's totally because of the wonderful guests that that we've had on. So thank you to all those uh, fantastic, lovely, smart um, people who've ch- taken their time and come on board and uh, and discussed their their you know their f- subjects that we've talked about in just you know some very very smart ways uh, and probably answered some really crappy rubbishy questions from me. Anyways, let's dive in and our first question. This is one actually I get asked quite a lot, um, and I think it's because of my kind of maybe stance that that leads sometimes towards the more philosophical or the psychological or that kind of thing. And it's the classic question, do biomechanics matter? Um, and, you know, this, this is actually a question that I'm going to say, I really hate this question um, because I, I, I actually don't really understand the question very well at all. So I don't actually understand what people mean when they ask or use the term biomechanics. Do they mean, you know, which component of biomechanics are they talking about? Um, because if you pick up a biomechanics book, you know, or something like your Neumann's kinesiology book, which was a classic that I bought about 15, 18 years ago, um, you know, you pick up a book that's got 
biomechanics in it and it it, it talks about physics um you know it talks about some really really complex mathematics um you know there's quite a lot to this biomechanical thing apparently you can like even like do qualifications in it like degrees and masters and phds um so when people say does biomechanics matter what i actually think they mean is they probably mean movement um, but obviously biomechanics is much, much more than that, you know, like loads more than that. Um, so it is about movement, but it's also, you know, about axes of rotation and, you know, um, various other, you know, physics and, uh, and Newton's laws and all these other things that I probably should have paid attention uh, a little bit more to, you know, your classic, uh, you know, moment arms and, uh, and all these other things that, that really, really smart people know lots about. And, and I don't know that much about, but, you know, so, uh, I think most people do mean, um, movement when it comes to this. So really the question people are asking is, is does, movement matter um so if you were to ask me does biomechanics matter and i'd say well it's a it's a huge field <laughs> i mean they wouldn't be this huge field if it didn't matter so i think it probably does matter um so you you know but i do think it's a classic example of when we probably need uh, to dig and delve a little deeper and find out actually what do you mean um, by biomechanics is it movement is it you know kinematics joint motion is it kinetics are we talking about forces are we talking about you know newton's laws you know what are we talking about um but when people you know so let's assume that people are discussing uh movement so does movement matter? Uh, certainly biomechanics matters. There's a whole field of science and full of very, very smart people, et cetera. So we're asking the question, does movement matter? And I think we probably have to say yes and no and probably maybe. Um, I think movement is one of these things. And, uh, and there was some research done by the CFT guys. Uh, Kevin Wernley, I think, was uh, was the lead on it. And they looked at th this question. They wanted to find out with the people that they were looking at, um, do changes in movement correlate with changes in the outcome? And they measured various things. I think some were more um, uh, movement, kinematic related. I think some were kinetic related, like, you know, forces, uh, et cetera. And, and they found exactly the enlightening answer of sometimes yes and sometimes no. So, you know, I, we we just don't know. So I think we have to view move, movement as a very individualized thing. So for some people, you know, they you will play around with moving differently and you might not change any way that someone moves, but, you know, something changes somewhere and, and they feel better. And then for other people, you know, they could change what they do entirely, you know, minimize how much motion they get, or, you know, we might increase, you know, how much variation or variability people get. And there's some really interesting research that came out this week, actually, that, that I think it was a systematic review. I saw it on the physio uh, meet science guys. So shout out to those guys out in Germany. Um, you know, I saw it on their feed and I downloaded it. And like lots of papers I've downloaded, I hadn't quite got around to reading them all. I don't know if you do that as well. So you kind of download about 40 papers a week and then you probably read five or six. And I think that's a good ratio. Um, but there was one that actually, you know, looked at movement variability 
and found that, you know, that there were some correlations um, with with back pain. Now, is that chicken or egg? Is it cause and effect? Um, you know, for, for, for some people, it will make a huge difference to them. And for other people, it won't uh, make a huge difference. And this is where we it starts to become a bit hazy. Um, you know, because we can't say that something will have an effect for everybody or on average, it doesn't mean that it won't have an effect for someone, um, which is really, really tough. And, and this is really, you know, the big difference between what we have is population level data uh, that's, that, that we need, absolutely. But it doesn't predict or guarantee what it will happen, what will happen for an individual at a, uh, a clinical level. Um, and I, I, that's, I think, why sometimes we do need this little bit more individualized research that actually looks at two variables uh, within an individual to see if there is a correlation. So that, that CFT work um, was really fantastic uh, at doing that. And, and so we have to say, do biomechanics matter? Um, and again, it, 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 it's a yes, it's a yes and a no. But is it just biomechanics is the question? Is it just movement? Movement is more than the mechanics, isn't it? You know, are, are our biomechanics a reflection of our state of mind and, and how we, you know, how we operate? I, there's been some, you know, other research, I think some Deborah Faller research that's, you know, made some correlations between levels of fear and how slowly we move and range of movement and these type of things. So really our biomechanics are not just mechanics, are they? We are measuring them in a mechanical sense. So we are using biomechanics to measure motion. Um, but do those biomechanics, you know, it's not just mechanics they're reflecting. They're reflecting, you know, the full smorgasbord of, of interrelated subsystems that human beings are, you know, who operate in, in this wonderful biopsychosocial, inseparable kind of, you know, way that, that, that we can't always boil down into these discrete little entities that that are separate are they well as i just said discrete so do biomechanics matter well definitely if they're a reflection of human beings uh, so but we have to appreciate that that isn't just about movement it's actually about you know it, it's about us as people our level of confidence our level of fear you know how how confident we are to use our body in certain ways so you know, when we do see correlations between some what you might call psychological factors or cognitive factors um, and and movement and, and the mechanics, you have to say, well, it's not really just mechanics, is it? So do biomechanics matter? Well, as a system of measurement, absolutely. But the question is, can we change those mechanics without changing other things? And then can we change other things? And that changes our mechanics. Um, and that's where I think things start to get really kind of messy. An analogy I always think of, um, or, 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 you know, or, or something, a story that reflects this, is imagine if we are walking by the side of a river, or we're walking on, on, on the top of the Empire State Building and there's no fences anywhere, and we're wandering along, um, would we walk the same as if we were walking on an entirely flat sports field? You know, 
that that our environment and how we perceive that environment actually shape and affect our mechanics. So if I'm by the side of a rushing river and I'm going to paint a very, you know, uh, kind of graphic picture here. So the torrents of water are foaming and bubbling. And, you know, we're thinking if I fall in here, this is it. This is curtains. This is over. Um, Are my mechanics going to be the same as if I am, you know, just on my own street or in my house or in a perfectly safe environment. So our mechanics are not just uh, fixed. They are constantly changing according to the context that we're in. Um, And that's the most interesting thing is that I think we have to, we have to appreciate that biomechanics are not just uh, mechanical. They're not, you know, they're not, just separate to us as human beings so our biomechanics do matter and they're probably and that's movement and it's probably a reflection of us and our current state um and our experiences and all these other things um but for some people maybe that those mechanics aren't tied into how much pain they experience maybe they are completely separate and for some other people they may be very very tied into uh, you know, what, how they feel and, and these type of things. My own feeling about chronic pain is really it's a bit of a loop. So people can get stuck in a loop of movement or get stuck in a loop of thought or feeling or, um, you know, whatever else, behaviours and habits. Uh, and this kind of maintains this constant experience that people have that may be tied in with pain. And I don't know whether this is, you know, we're talking about, uh, mechanistically here, I think more the, the way I would perceive it would be more behaviorally because mechanistically, who knows uh, what's going on? There's so many different things that could be happening at a peripheral, a central or a neurological level that, that you know, it's very hard to decipher. But sometimes if we break part of that loop, whether it's a thought loop or whether it's an emotional loop or whether it's a movement loop, we can have a good success. And for other people, uh, you know, we can change different things and change their quality of life and not pain. And then for other people, we can make all these different changes and it makes very little difference at all because, uh, you know, it's too complex sometimes to be able to decipher. But when people ask me, do biomechanics matter? I think the first thing I'd have to say are, what, what, what really do you mean by that? Of course they matter. They're a whole field of science. Um, but, you know, movement is only one part and mechanic, you know, biomechanics are a way of measuring that and understanding that. Um, but human beings are this wonderful biological organism. And I think that biomechanics, sometimes we think more about the mechanics and less about the bio uh, part of, of what's going. So uh, thank you. That question was from Francisco. I'm not entirely sure where Francisco's from, but thank you for asking that question. Uh, so do biomechanics matter? Yes, no, maybe not sure. Um So what else do we have? Uh, Okay, here we have uh, another one. um, And this related to a post I put up the other day about personal um, philosophy. Um, And this is something that we've been doing in in my mentorship program before is starting to kind of think and think about how we can define our own uh, personal philosophy and Um, I did uh, a really little short course at the beginning of the year on evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice. Um, And I think we have to think about what is our philosophy in relation to evidence, for example. So, you know, some people are very, very empirical. If it's not, you know, quantitative numbers, um, you know, 
RCT, double blinded, triple blinded, whatever. <laughs> Everyone's blinded. Um, you can't even read the paper because you're blinded. Um, it's you know that some that that's very much one philosophical uh, take on um, evidence-based medicine, and you could say it's a philosophy of not much philosophy in terms of you know thinking about these things too much. It's a very human type of you know data-driven empirical type of perspective. Um, so you know our personal philosophy, I think, is really what we what we're about when it comes to um, you know how we operate and function in this rehabilitation environment space. Um, and so you know, philosophy sometimes I think is a little misunderstood. Really, it's just thinking, isn't it? It's thinking about thinking um, and how we generate our knowledge, epistemology, and these type of things. And you know, we have lots of these philosophical terms that I actually think alienate people um, quite a lot, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, sometimes there's his own kind of academic elitism, I think, when it comes to philosophy that that maybe turns people off when it should, um, you know, re- really should turn people on. And actually, if I, we cast our mind back to episode three or four of, Core, of the Core Kinetic podcast with Roger Carey, um, we talked very much uh, about defining you know uh, our, our philosophy in relation to evidence-based practice um at the beginning of university so rather diving in and you know as i did many years ago looking at you know contingency tables and different equations and you know all the statistical bits actually we're saying you know what is our what is our philosophy when it comes to evidence-based medicine now i really think that we should define our own personal philosophy when it comes to rehab when it comes to uh, musculoskeletal practice you know what are the things that you think are important what are the things are that you think are relevant you know and that could be to do with evidence and and, and how you look at evidence it could be to do with your treatment style um it could be to do with you know various other things in your in your clinical pa- practice you know some people are very biopsychosocially driven other people are more um you know maybe more traditionally biomedically driven and that's part of our um philosophy some people uh maybe you know driven by a, a person focus um certainly that's part of my uh philosophy you know mostly because i'm not very good at uh, you know, some of the other stuff, but I've always felt I'm okay at relating to people and talking to people and, uh, and being with people and communicating with people, you know, not over egging the pudding, you know, you don't need to have done a million communication courses to, 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 you know, be good at communication. Cause there's good communicators out there that, that do it naturally, but not, not to say you shouldn't go out and do a communication course, but don't think that you can't, work on your communication or think about your communication or be better at it, you know, unless you go on some, you know, act course or this course or, 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 or the other course, they, they might be very beneficial. Are they necessary? I suppose is the question you'd have to ask, but just taking a moment to define your own personal philosophy, I think can be a really valuable thing uh, because it's saying, you know, who, who am I, you know, what do I, what do I think is important here? Um, you know, what, 
what guides me. And I think often we can get a bit lost in the uncertainty of clinical practice. Like most of the time when I'm talking to patients, um, I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? I have no idea. Um, so let's just ask some more questions and, uh, and dig in a little bit deeper. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone else ever feels like that. You, you know, it's it, it just on a, you're on a bit of a kind of, you know, uh, especially I think it's with there's so many different variables that now we have to think about um, that, that sometimes it can be uh, lots of lots of different things going on, like a big spaghetti carbonara, isn't it? Trying to untangle all the threads and, you know, trying to get biopsychosocial and understand all these different things can be really, uh, really difficult if we're being honest. But, you know, that difficulty and that uncertainty actually is, is again, part of our personal philosophy, isn't it? It's some, it's a, we get to a point where we can say, actually, I'm uncomfortable with that. Uh, lots of other people are probably uncomfortable as well, you know, uh, even if we are going to be, uh, you know, biomedically driven, there still aren't always clear signs and symptoms to make a, uh, to make a, you know, structural diagnosis, if you like, are there, you know, so imagine throwing lots of other things into the mix um, as well. And, you know, it really, you know, it really does start to get overwhelming sometimes, actually, if you expect it to be clear cut and you get all the answers very, very simply and very, very um, easily, you know, so uh, that, the, the whole point of having a personal philosophy is, is kind of thinking about, you know, who am I? What has made up my experiences? How do I kind of start to define the way that I do things? What do I place importance on? I think that's the big question, isn't it? What do I place importance on? Is it, you know, listening to the patient? Is it trying to find a diagnosis? Is it, you know, something else um you know so many other different things that people may may find important so for me a personal philosophy isn't about some greek dude or roman dude or french dude um who's telling us about their philosophy and knowing their philosophy it's about trying to discover ourselves a little bit more and take a little bit of time um to do that so uh that question was from dita um i i i'm going to assume that that's a german name but, you know, it, it, people can just be from anywhere, can't they? Anywhere in the entire earth. Um, but thank you for that question about, you know, kind of defining personal um, philosophy. Uh, so another one was how much pain neuroscience education uh, do you need to do? Uh, and this is a really interesting question. This is something that I've been talking about since about 2016 or 2017. Um, and I, I've written a few blogs on it that are on the site from back in the day in the mists of time. Um, and really, um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? That 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 this idea of, of pain neuroscience is kind of coming under scrutiny a little bit. I don't think it, it's quite had the impact that maybe people thought it was going to have back in 2012, 2013, when, when it, I think it first started to gain uh, a little bit more traction, this idea that, you know, you could set down these kind of um, predefined, if you like, um, metaphors or stories um, that are going to resonate with patients are going to have like this profound effect 
um, on their level of pain. So if I was going to really ask, answer the question, how much P&E do you need? Um, I would say none or lots or a little bit. Um, and again, it's a little bit like how deep's a hole, how long is a piece of string um, as a question to some degree, because I don't think we can define that prior. So, you know, I, I, my answer would probably be how much P&E do you need? Well, the answer would be none. Because if you were going to ask me one answer, if you're going to ask me for one answer, um, I don't think that we can really, really simply define uh, something that everybody needs, right? So, so we, we can't know that. So, if you're going to ask me for an answer, I'd say, well, well, none, because you don't need it. Um, and what does it look like? Um, that would be another kind of, you know. Uh, version of of an answer to that question so certainly again these are very very one one of the, the issues we have i think is that often as clinicians we want very very sweeping answers um to very very hard difficult questions so you know this idea of does exercise work you know does manual therapy work does whatever work and I think that's really hard questions to answer because if it doesn't work, then to some degree, you're going to have to say, well, you know, if it doesn't work for one person, then you can't say it works to some degree, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, the question is, the problem is, I think that we're asking, um, we don't always talk about uh, the complexity of the question. So what does exercise work for? What does manual therapy work for? You know, who, who, who are the people that are being studied? What is the condition um, that is being studied? So, you know, it would be impossible for a research paper to, to, to answer these questions because they're far too broad. Um, so how much P&E do, do we need? Well, you know, if, you, you, if you're going to ask me to say, I would say none. Um, but could it be helpful for people? And the answer to that question is absolutely. Um, but I think we need to change our perception of how we use pain education. I think that's the most important thing. So I, I, I think we might need to drop the N, the neuroscience bit, and just say, well, is it just pain education? Because pain education doesn't need to be about neuroscience. It doesn't need to have uh, anatomy in it. It doesn't need to be about nociceptors or, or whatever. Uh, it doesn't need to be about the biology, I don't think. You know, uh, it should maybe best kind of education. In fact, is it education? I, I think that's one of the things. I, I much prefer the terminology of sense-making, this idea that we are um, helping someone understand their own experience. I think that's what for me, pain education is really about. So is it education? Well, I think this introduces this idea of me sitting down, telling someone about their pain, giving them these flashcards with predefined um, answers or metaphors on them. And actually, um, it's much more about listening and working with conceptualizations, I think, that patients have. And maybe they don't have any conceptualizations. They have uh, scenarios or maybe they have things that they don't understand, situations that are happening to them that they can't explain that worry them. And they're looking for some kind of answer, some reassurance, some understanding. And I think that's really what 
pain education should be about. It's about helping people understand their painful experience better. Now, does that require neuroscience? Well, absolutely not, or could. You know, if we had to define it, I would say, no, it doesn't have to. Um, But could it be helpful? Absolutely. Um, So maybe we need to change our understanding of when we talk about pain. Talking about pain is probably first understanding, uh, you know, people's painful experiences first. And if we can understand those painful experiences a little better and add some of our knowledge and our understanding of pain and our uh, experience of working with people with pain, then we can start to help to make some sense of that. Um, So, uh, you know, does everyone need a sense-making experience? And I would say to some degree, yes, that understanding someone's painful problem, their own understanding is probably one of the most important things that that people are looking for. People come to us, yes, because they want pain relief, but they also want to be able um, to, to, to make sense of the problem that they've got. And by making sense of it, we can de-threaten it. We can start to um, let it affect us less across this whole biopsychosocial spectrum, whether that's our quality of life, whether it's our actions, whether it's our engagement with valued activities, all of these different things. Um, So really, I think everyone needs some sense-making around their problem, right? So some kind of element of understanding. They want to understand it better, especially if it's starting to generate worry and concern, which it can do a lot of the time. Uh, everyone needs some sense-making or potentially needs some sense-making. Does that have to involve neuroscience? Should it look the same is the real big question. I don't think it should. I think it really has to be contextual and it has to relate to the person in front of us, which means that we have to, to some degree, understand their situations, their context, uh, and their conceptualizations of their problem. And, you know, we can give people lots of pain information. Does it resonate with them? Does Do they connect with it? Does it reassure them? Does it change their view and perspectives? It might not. So therefore we could say, well, it may be not education then because, you know, it isn't changing something. Um, but definitely I think we need this a little bit more sense making process. So that was probably a really crap answer. That's from Lauren, um, by the way. So Lauren, thank you for that question. And then finally, um, a question here about using evidence in practice. So how do I use evidence in my practice? Um, And this goes back to uh, kind of this personal philosophy again, doesn't it? How do we view evidence? Uh, And if we think about you know, evidence that we get in the form of randomized control trials, et cetera. These are population level data, they're means and averages. And if you have, you know, really big sample sizes, really well sampled sizes, well, well sampled um, groups, then I, I think that our means and our averages are a better reflection of, um, you know, the, the general population. So, you know, that's the point of a confidence interval, isn't it? To say, well, how confident can we be in this sampling process due to, you know, what we see within that sample, such as the sample size and uh, and uh, and such as the variability in the sample. So, um, you know, there is a, a, a some level of inherent uncertainty reflected in a mean anyway. But, you know, my personal philosophy when it comes to evidence-based medicine is what happens at an individual level is still 
important. Um, and this is the real challenge is trying to reconcile this idea that, you know, something works or doesn't work. And then this individual that's actually experiencing um, that. And, you know, sometimes these people might not be reflective of the mean or might not be reflective of the group that was studied uh, within a research paper. Um, and it, it's really trying to reconcile um, these two things. But, you know, so uh, I, I think we have to get to a point where we're comfortable with trying to reconcile these two different things together, this individual in front of us with their personal experiences, their stories, their, their lived experience of, of the condition that they're suffering from. And then this population level um, data that we have that's controlled and much more about the efficacy often of, of a specific intervention. And it's it's very very difficult is what it is but i think we do need to expect less um from from population data sometimes i think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier or i was talking about earlier with a personal philosophy um that you know if you expect people to respond exactly like they do in a piece of research um, then I think we've misunderstood the human condition and the, the level of variability that, that we have as human beings. And, you know, some people would say we are very similar um, as human beings. And I'd agree, but I also think we're really, really different as well. <laughs> so, again, this is a bit of a it's one of these situations you get into where where, you know, almost it's contradictory that you could view it in one way that human beings are very, very similar. Um, and you'd have to agree we are strikingly similar in lots of behaviours and, and physicality and physiology and stuff. But then also, you know, there's this nagging thing in the back of my mind that says, actually, we're really bloody different as well. And we talk differently and we've had different experiences and different lives and uh, and and these type of things, we 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 exist in different socio-economic environments. And if you think about things like the social determinants of health, well, you could say two really really similar human beings stuck in two quite different social environments actually seem to have um, quite different outcomes. If you look at social determinants of health, it seems like a big deal. So, you know, even though we are similar, we're also quite different as well, um, and we can really be quite different to, to the mean. Um, and I don't know if there's an answer here, actually, in all this um, kind of crap that I'm talking. I don't know if there is an answer or how, how you um, how you really do reconcile the individual and the, 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 the data. I suppose to some degree, you have to think about the data as a parameter, but um, like a, a probability to some degree of what potentially could happen. But then you could say, well, in a different environment, you know, under different constraints, um, things might be completely different as well. So, I, you know, and I don't want to run down um, kind of, you know, quantitative research because I think it's really, really important and I support it and I use it uh, and I post about it and all these different things. But then I don't think we can use it simply to always reflect the individual in front of us and just fire and forget an intervention and expect to get the mean average response from our patient that 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 was was you know computed um in the research paper and i don't know if i've got an answer of how to put these things together but let's say you know let's take exercise for osteoarthritis there is some variance um in outcomes you know some trials have shown you know 
good outcomes. Others have shown against sham ultrasound that it's not that great, um, you know, as a between group um, effect size. So, uh, but on average, I'd say uh, as an overall perspective, you would say exercise probably would provide benefit for osteoarthritis. It's certainly an intervention that you'd probably try because, you know, you can give it a go and see what happens. And and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But what effect are we going to get? I am thinking on the balance of probability of reading the research, I expect that this is going to be a positive for you. Do I know how much of a positive? Not really. Um, You know, and actually, I'm also holding this part of my brain and I'm going to warn you and say, well, actually, any intervention could have a negative outcome where you where you make pain worse and or you could make pain worse. That isn't really a huge kind of. Um, you know, adverse outcome. It, it's a it's a temporary one. You know, ninety nine percent of the time, you flare something up and it and it calms down again. But there's always that possibility that it could happen. So let's think about using evidence in practice as about probabilities of what is likely to happen, given that the person in front of you has a relation to the research that we're talking about. So similar age, <coughs> similar occupations, uh, similar levels of activity, what have you. And if we can do that and say, well, this piece of research fits my patient, um, therefore I'm going to say the probability of this intervention is likely to be positive in some degree. I can't tell you how much. Um, You know, there always might be a possibility of an adverse event such as a flare-up, but I'm confident that, you know, we can um, we can probably give this a go, and, and I, you know, I, I think it's a fair shout to say that it's going to have um, some positive effect. How much is another question. What are you expecting it to do is is another question. I think these are all the the individual factors and things that we have to discuss. But evidence and data should never replace the person. Um, who is experiencing the problem. It needs to be something that guides us in some way, uh, but doesn't replace that thinking, feeling person in front of us and how um, how they, they perceive the world. And I think if we go down this kind of strictly empirical route, um, then we lose that person. That's exactly the kind of thing that Engel was discussing when it comes to uh, the biopsychosocial model. It becomes more about numbers and science than it does about people. Um, and I think within MSK, definitely, it, I believe it's more about people um, that, than pathology, if I'm, if I'm being really honest. So um, that was from Mike. Um, and look, so thank you for all the questions you sent. Sorry, I've only answered four. I didn't really want to witter on. And next month, we're going to come back and we're going to have, I think next month, sometime in the not too distant future, we're going to come back with episode 13, someone much, much smarter, someone uh, much more vivacious uh, and, um, and, you know, clever than I am uh, to talk about some proper stuff. But I hope you've enjoyed this little interlude. And I will see you next time. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.